This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 6, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, I talk with staff writer Adrian Cho about the latest gravitational wave finds, including a new neutron star merger and strange and unexpected black holes. I also talk with researcher Sarah Davidson about an Arctic animal tracking project that captures the movement of many species over decades in order to set a baseline for future Arctic investigations and to look at the effects of climate on ecosystems in this region. Now we have Adrian Cho, a staff writer here at Science. He is the latest from Gravitational Wave Hunters. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Okay. Gravitational waves were first detected in 2015 by LIGO, and there have been a number, more than 10 other events spotted in the years since. These observations came from two detectors in the U.S. and now one in Europe. Can you briefly describe what they do, what they're sensing, and how they work? Gravitational wave detectors are probably the most mind-bending scientific instruments ever conceived. A gravitational wave is actually the stretching of the fabric of space-time itself that can be set off by massive objects when they collide. As they merge, they set off ripples in space and time that go speeding out at the speed of light in all directions. What the gravitational wave detectors do is they actually detect the stretching of space-time with these very big optical instruments called interferometers. The stretching of space-time is incredibly small. When one of these signals comes by, it actually will stretch the Earth by about the width of maybe, say, a half a dozen atomic nuclei. Mm -hmm. The arms are really, really long in the kilometer range. Uh, LIGO's interferometers have arms that are four kilometers long, and Virgo is slightly smaller. It's 
interferometer has three kilometer long arms. And they're looking for something that's the width of a, a handful of atoms, a change in the length of that arm. So that's the stretch over the entire Earth. What they measure, they're comparing the length of these two arms. They're able to determine that difference in the distances to something like one ten thousandth the width of a proton. It is just <laughs> mind-bogglingly small. And what that, that represents is something really big happening. We're talking the collision or the merger of two black holes, as you say. In the past, we've seen maybe 10 or 11 of those. And this new set of detections is a huge treasure trove. We're talking how many black hole mergers? They've got a lot more data. They had 11 events total before, yeah. which were 10 mergers of black holes and one very, very spectacular merger of two neutron stars that also produced light signals uh, and was seen by all kinds of different observatories. But they've added to that catalog, and this is from data taken in 2019, and they've added a total of 39 new events. Wow. 37 of them are black hole mergers. One of them is probably a neutron star merger, although they weren't able to identify optical signals from it. And then there's one that's tantalizing that the masses are right for it to be a neutron star, which is very light and a slightly heavier black hole. But again, there's no optical signal from that. Compared to where they were prior to this data release, the total number of events is now 50 up from 11. So it's increased by a factor of five. Let's letting researchers do a different kind of science, basically, on black holes, black hole mergers, because you now have a population and you can kind of look across and, and make categorizations and do a little analysis that way. Can you talk about some of the new questions that can be answered by looking at black hole mergers this way? The idea is that you now have a statistically significant sample, so you can start to analyze the population as a whole instead of simply trying to explain individual events, in particular for black holes, because most of these events are black hole mergers, a much better understanding of what these black hole systems look like, maybe even how they form, which is a really, really big mystery. This is not about how to make a black hole, but how to make a pair of black holes. The big puzzle for the astrophysicists is, well, how the heck do you get two black holes that are orbiting around each other and eventually spiral into each other as they radiate gravitational energy? There are two main schools of thought. One is that you start out with a pair of massive stars that have actually formed together from one swirling cloud of gas, and they form big unstable stars. Both of them collapse to black holes. That gives you a, a pair, and they eventually spiral into each other. And the other argument is that somehow the black holes pair after they're formed, huh. perhaps in these tiny little old galaxies called uh, globular clusters that are known to have, or at least thought to have, lots of black holes in them. People aren't really sure which of these happens, whether they both happen, which one dominates. But with the now 47 black holes, you can see how they can get purchased on this in a way that they couldn't before. And mm -hmm. so one of the key things 
is how the black holes spin. If they all formed out of, uh, the whole thing formed out of one swirling cloud of gas, that original swirling motion is likely to have left its imprint on the final black hole pair. And the black holes should both spin, roughly speaking, in the same direction that they're orbiting each other. So everything sort of lines up in terms of spin. On the other hand, if the black holes find each other after they've been created, it's possible that they could spin in different directions or that you could even get a black hole spinning in the opposite direction of the sense of the orbital motion or, you know, mostly in that direction. So when they looked across this new crop of black hole mergers, did they see a trend? The difference that this alignment makes in the signal of any individual event is really pretty weak and ambiguous. And so it's not like you're likely to get a smoking gun event where you can say, ha ha, I've proved that that one black hole is spinning in the opposite direction of the orbital motion. But by analyzing it, the whole thing together, the LIGO and Virgo researchers were able to make a statistical argument that says it looks like some of these are spinning in the wrong direction, in the direction opposite of the orbit. And that suggests that, in fact, some of these pairs form after the black holes have been born and that they somehow find each other. Another surprising find looking across all of these mergers was that There are some predictions about the size of black holes, about how big they can be. And there's always been kind of these expected gaps in the data. And that got filled in. We started to see holes of unexpected sizes. So there is this presumed mass gap, as they call it. It's actually the upper mass gap between about 45 and 120, where they didn't expect to find any black holes. And it's because as the star forms, in this mass region, there should be some particle physics involved in the star itself that will actually essentially blow the star apart long before it gets to the point where the inner part can collapse to form a black hole. But we wouldn't be talking about this if there weren't some news about black holes in this range. In fact, they found three, and they found one with a mass of 85 solar masses. It's possible, you know, this 85 solar mass black hole that they saw merging, if that itself had been produced by two smaller black holes, the mass gap applies literally to the formation of the black hole from the star. So if you have mergers of mergers, there may be a way around it, but it's all very exciting because it's a surprise. Another result you can get from looking at such a wide range of black holes is, you know, they're going to have different ages and they're going to have different locations. Can it tell you something about what happened a long time ago and what's happening in different parts of the universe? One of the other cool things that's come out of this trove of black holes is a limit on how much the rate of black hole mergers may have changed over the age of the universe. They can't see all the way back to the beginning of the stars, the very first stars and black holes, but they have seen events that go out nearly to when the universe was only 6 billion years old, less than half the age that it is now. Astrophysicists had expected that you would see more black hole mergers in the deep cosmic past than you see right now. And the reason for that's pretty straightforward, which is that star production in the universe was higher in the past than it is now. I hate to break it to you all, but uh, we're, we're living in a universe that's past its prime. We're sort of a middle-aged universe here. But since the star production rate was higher, generally you would expect that the rate of black hole mergers would have been higher as well. 
But there was a huge, huge error bar on that. And the rate could have been 100,000 times higher when the universe was 6 billion years old than it is now. With this bigger data set and with some luck, they found a number of really big black holes really far out. But they were able to clamp down the uncertainty on that. And it now appears that the rate of black hole mergers back, you know, when the universe was 6 billion years old, was no more than 10 times what it is now. So they've started to narrow that. There's still big uncertainties, but it doesn't look like the rate of black hole mergers has changed in quite the same way that the rate of star production has. So there's, you know, a nuance there. It's early days, but that's the kind of thing that they're going to be able to tell with better and better precision as they get more events. So it's really showing where the science is going and how it's going to evolve. You bring up precision. Is that something that was important in this new set of results? Is there a change in detection limit? The LIGO detectors have run for three observing runs each roughly a year. And Virgo has been involved in two of those. In between the runs, physicists and engineers tweak the instruments and try to make them more sensitive. They've improved it so in this third run, they were able to see out in space about twice as far. A signal of the same strength could be seen at a distance twice as far away. That means that you're probing eight times as much volume of space. So you get a very big improvement in the rate. Is that also why there aren't a lot of optical signals with the gravitational wave signal because things are further away? Or why aren't we seeing, you know, these multi-messenger signals for these new observations? The tough part there is that to see so-called optical counterpart, right, to see, you know, see light, to see radio waves, gamma rays, that kind of thing from one of these things, it's really got to involve a neutron star. So they can't see the neutron stars as far out. You know, you might think, oh my goodness, they've got 47 black holes total. They've got two neutron star mergers and they've got one neutron star black hole possibility. Black holes must massively outnumber neutron stars, but that's not true because the neutron stars are so much lighter. So even though the uncertainty in the number of neutron star mergers is very big because they've only got two events, it roughly suggests that neutron star mergers in our local area will outnumber black hole mergers by more than a factor of 10 to 1. So the black holes, they just see them because the black holes tend to be so much more massive. So there's this very, very big selection bias that they have to take into account. From some of these gravitational wave signals, we've been able to tell how old the black holes are, the merging black holes are. We've been able to tell their spin and their size. How do we get all of that information out of a chirp? Yeah, it is really, really tricky. So what these signals look like, they really look like chirps. It's a sort of a warbling that starts out relatively quiet and then gets louder, but the frequency goes up. So it goes, whoop. I'll play one right now so people can hear. How you pull information out of this. The basic frequency is going to give you something called the chirp mass, which is going to give you a handle on the masses of the two black holes. If it's lower frequency, it's more massive black holes. They just go around each other slower. If it's higher frequency, it's just smaller objects going around each other. Once you have the masses, you can use the amplitude of the signal to estimate the distance. And there's a fair 
uncertainty here because it depends on exactly the plane of the orbit and what direction you're viewing this event from in all that. But nonetheless, once you know the masses, then you can say, okay, I know the masses. I know how loud, if you will, the gravitational waves are at the source. And so I can then figure out from how loud they appear at the detectors, how far away they are, right? Yeah. It's like if you hear a very faint whistle, but you know how loud that whistle is at the source, you can say, okay, well, it's this faint, so it must be, you know, half a mile away or something like that. Spins are the hardest part. You've got this waveform, this oscillating waveform, so it's going up and down, and it's a little like a sine wave that's running into a brick wall. It starts out at one spacing, and the spacing gets tighter and tighter. There's a thing called the phase, which is essentially whether the thing is going up or down relative to, say, that moment where it stops. The phase shift gives them some purchase on spin. All right. Thank you so much, Adrian. My pleasure, sir. Adrian Cho is a staff writer at Science. You can find a link to his article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Next up, we have Sarah Davidson. She's going to talk about the new Arctic Animal Movement Archive. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, When we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that, too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org slash news. Scroll down a little bit and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org slash news. Scroll down a little bit. Click subscribe on the right side. I'm sure you've seen maps of the migration routes for birds, whales, even butterflies. And these are scientists tagging or collaring wildlife to better understand their biology. Those single species studies are pretty common, but it's not been that common to see the movements of many different species moving in and out of the same place and how those movements change over time. Sarah Davidson is here to talk about the results of one such project in the Arctic and a new database that will help researchers keep an eye on this key region. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Why is the Arctic an important place to study the movement of animals and changes in their seasonal behavior? Climate change is causing the fastest rates of warming at the poles. So this means that the Arctic is warming and changing more quickly than at temperate climates. And so having a dynamic archive of these data also gives us a possibility to detect changes more quickly. What kinds of questions can we ask of data like these, the movement of many species over time? What an individual animal is experiencing at any one time is this mixture of weather and what's happening in its habitat and what other animals are around. And so to find this decades-long signal 
in individual animal movements is going to take typically much more than just, you know, five or 10 or 20 animals that we maybe followed for, for a few months of their lives or maybe even a few years. And so if we can bring together either data for the same species over a huge area, over a long time, or even data for many species at once, it helps us detect these bigger scale signals that we will never be able to see in just one of those data sets. What were some of the species that you looked at and how long of a time period were you able to incorporate into this data set? We have over 8,000 individual animals, and this is with over 15 million locations measured in the Arctic and subarctic regions. That's caribou, eagles, anything that's been tagged. There's 86 different species in here right now. It's not constrained to just marine species, just terrestrials, just birds. It's anything where we're able to measure movements of individuals. This is a collaboration across many, many different labs and research teams. We have hundreds of researchers, hundreds of organizations involved. In many cases, they've been working with us for years on these analyses that we show in the paper. Each researcher, each organization is maintaining ownership of their data. Whether the data are public or not, you can go contact them and ask them if you can use their data for a particular purpose. And the idea is that to understand these data, we can't just kind of download them all and make an amazing map. We can do that, but to start to understand these signals and really looking at at the biology of what's happening, we need to be communicating with the people who are out in the field. Yeah. I wonder if I can see that in this paper today. So for example, you talk about when caribou have babies and how that signal in the movement data, it's not like a baby pops out and it suddenly has a tracker on it, right? It's more about the behavior of the mothers that lets you know when they're having babies. And that's something that you would learn from people who study caribou specifically, rather than just looking at maps and data points and kind of following trails. Yeah, we had to bring in the knowledge of the biologists who are out there in the field. Turns out when you have a baby, you have to slow down for a while. They can actually detect that in an automated way and then come back again and again to the wildlife biologists working with these species to say, here's what it looks like we're seeing. Does this make sense to you? And there's a lot of back and forth to make sure that we're understanding what's going on. They may say, hey, you want to check this or check that. What did you find when you looked at caribou when they have babies over this time and over all these different areas of the world? We looked at caribou data covering millions of square kilometers in Alaska and Canada. Going back to 2000, a couple of decades, we were able to identify about 1,000 births. And we were able to look at when and where those births occurred. What we found was that the herds farther to the north are giving birth earlier in the spring, whereas the herds farther south are not showing this same change. They haven't shown a trend over time, at least not that we can detect yet. It does point to this bigger question that you're taking on, which is what happens when animals change their behavior patterns in relation to the seasons, in relation to precipitation? You know, how does that pull apart the relationships they have with other species that share the same habitat? Sure. So there's a lot of questions in that, right? So for female caribou, when they're giving birth 
and nursing their young, this is a period of very high energetic demands. And so that needs to correspond with a high food supply for caribou, high vegetation productivity. And so they might be adjusting that timing of giving birth based on changes in that availability of food, or there could be a mismatch where as things change, some conditions are better for giving birth and some are worse. And so that's where we could start to see some impacts, you know, that could have conservation implications. You also look at wolves and some other herbivores. So we looked at bears and wolves and caribou and moose, and we looked to see how much are they moving in the summer and in the winter? And how does that vary when the temperatures are high and low in each season? And how does it vary when the precipitation, so in the summer, that's rain, in the winter, that's snow. Are their movement rates affected by these different conditions in the summer and winter? What did you find over time? I'm assuming you looked at least at a decade worth of this data. We looked at 1,700 animals covering the period from 1998 to 2019. This analysis showed that all of these species move less in the winter than in the summer, which isn't a big surprise. We also found that during very high temperatures in the summer, we see that some species move more and some move less. And in the winter, we found that increased amounts of snow impede the movements of some species, but not others. And so again, this is something that researchers can come back to and look at more, but we can definitely see some possible implications for the ability to find food and predator-prey relationships. So are these predator and prey species going to run into each other more or less if, say, one is speeding up and one is slowing down? So that could change those dynamics. I think we should also touch on golden eagles. This is a third species, or this is a third study that is described in the paper. What questions were you asking about golden eagle movements over time, and what did you see? So we looked at the migrations of over 100 golden eagles that occurred from 1993 all the way to 2017. So these are golden eagles that migrate north into the Arctic and subarctic in the spring from areas farther south. And we found that following warmer winters, the younger eagles arrived sooner. So this would be juveniles um, and immature golden eagles would arrive at their Arctic summering grounds earlier, but the arrival time of adults seemed to stay constant. This has potential implications for fledgling survival and breeding success. What do you see as a theme in these results, you know, something that holds true across these findings? We found widespread responses of wildlife in their movement rates, their migration timing, and their life history traits. So in this case, you know, when, when they're having babies, all being impacted by these climate signals. What do you think are some other important questions to ask as this data set, as this big collaboration machine that you put together, as more people come on board, as more people start to interrogate what's in there? One of the crucial things we're providing is a source of baseline data. So if you have more recent data and you want to know what did things look like previously, here's a place you can go to for that. And we're really going to need that in order to detect long-term changes. We're providing an archive for future researchers and future generations of what the Arctic used to be like. Without an archive like this, I think a lot of these data would eventually be lost. This data has been collected going back decades, back into the 80s. Why has it taken so long to 
put it together? Was standardization an issue? Was it just hard to get people to release and share data? Yes, (laughs) all of those things. So this project began with some funding we got from NASA as part of a project called the Arctic Boreal Vulnerability Experiment. And we got a group of government agencies, researchers, conservation groups to all join together with the idea of we want to do some big scale assessments and analyses with another goal to get all these data organized for the purposes of those analyses, but also for future potential sharing. And so, yes, we had data sharing agreements with groups. We had to make sure everybody was okay with the proposed uses. Each data owner can choose who to share their data with. This let us create an archive that was bigger and allowed for long-term maintenance, as opposed to, say, if we had built a little database just for our project. It's just so many different kinds of data all mixed together. Something's flying, something's running around, something's swimming. And like you kind of have to make it so that it talks to each other. Yes. And then there's other data too. So some of them have thermometers on them. Some of them are measuring activity levels, which can be used to parse out other behavioral characteristics. I would say the last piece that I was involved in in this project was to help really bring this together and turn it from a bunch of projects we put together for this particular study into a bigger project where we could incorporate researchers from around the Arctic region. The Arctic database that we're talking about is actually on a platform called MoveBank, which is a database that covers the whole globe. Why did you want to combine with global data? Why did you want to put these things together? There are people out there tracking species that aren't Arctic species, but they will be. Yeah. There's people who are putting transmitters on animals in Korea and in South America, and they're flying to the Arctic or swimming to the Arctic. Really, we're looking at a lot of, for the long distance migrants, we're looking at global movements that that overlap with the Arctic. I called this a collaboration machine before when we were talking about how researchers are connected through this, but it goes beyond just people doing research to uh, the larger picture of people who are interested in uh, the movement of animals. We can also use this resource to encourage communication between wildlife managers, researchers, conservation groups, and even the public or communities that are in the Arctic and also not in the Arctic, but connect with the Arctic. We're letting also these people find each other. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Sarah Davidson is the data curator at the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior. You can find a link to the study and the database at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. 
When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.